0: My name is Mickey Horvath, and I am the host of the Career Guy podcast, where I am interviewing a variety of guests and letting them share their stories about their career and career path, giving you, the listener, a lot more insight into the various careers that do exist, perhaps helping you make more informed choices of the career path you may want to take in your life. This episode is with Leslie Hetherington. Leslie currently works in PR for the Chiropractic Association of Ontario. Her education is extensive. She has a graphic illustration diploma from Seneca College in Toronto, Ontario. She has a certificate from Humber College specializing in public relations. She has an MBA from Royal Roads University, located in Victoria, British Columbia. She has a certificate in Interactive Media Management from Centennial College, located in Toronto. In addition to all this, she was also involved in the theatre program at York University, where she will explain how her career starts. The title of this episode is A Storyteller. And that is what she does in her career in PR and communications, as listeners will find out. Her career is extensive, from working for agencies to various areas in government and to an array of businesses in various industries. She also describes what it is like to work as a freelancer. As Leslie takes us through her career and describes how organizations communicate and or market themselves to the public, she will also describe how technology has changed this medium as well. There are lessons here in history for sure. This interview will benefit anybody that is interested in a career in theater as Leslie will describe her experience in the theater program for sure in graphic design, public relations, marketing, communications, and more general, how organizations being private, public, or even government interact and communicate with the public. This is definitely an inspirational and thought provoking and informative interview. With that, I would like to welcome Leslie. So this afternoon, I'm talking to Leslie Hetherington, and Leslie's going to describe her career to us and all the obstacles and all the meandering that she's done in her career. Well, I've known Leslie since, I think it was about April, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're in a podcasting workshop, and that's where we did meet in the, mm-hmm. and and uh, since then, we've been connecting every couple of weeks with another bunch of other podcasters. So right now, with, with that, I'd like to welcome Leslie.
1: Thank you so much, Mickey, thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. Right now, as far as I know, you live in Toronto, Ontario. Is that right?
1: That's correct. I've actually lived here all my life. I know that sounds incredibly boring, but the city has always delivered in terms of employment, in terms of healthcare, in terms of entertainment, schools, education, everything it checks, all, checks all the boxes. That's uh, Toronto, one of those rare people who actually was born in Toronto and still lives here.
0: Yeah, that that is really rare. With that said, though, too, if you carry to, you want to talk a a little bit about your upbringing?
1: Sure. I think I was raised in a fairly conservative household. My father was a chartered accountant. He actually came over from, he was born in Manchester, England, and then was in the RAF in the war, World War II. He met my mother, who was born in the UK, but only because her mother was on a trip, (laughs) And so she was Canadian, but first generation Canadian born to British parents. Her mother would take in soldiers during the war who were recovering from illness. So my father had had scarlet fever. And so somehow he ended up being, I guess, billeted there or whatever you would call it for a couple of weeks to rec- after he was recuperating from scarlet fever. And my mother would often take the soldiers out to the local mess hall or whatever and oversee and see that they were were taken care of as it were. And they struck up a rapport and they corresponded the good old letter writing during the war. And then after the war, my father, they sort of talked about marriage. So my mother basically flew over to England to marry a pretty much a perfect stranger. She'd only known him for a couple of weeks in person, married him. They lived in England for a year where my father did his chartered accountant's exams and then came to Canada for more opportunities. They settled in Toronto for a few years and they went down in the 50s to Brazil and then came back here. They had my sister and my brother all during that time. And my sister and my brother were 10 and 12 years older than me. So I was brought up almost like an only child. My mother was trained as an executive secretary and was very creative, but she'd given up art scholarships because she had brothers and she felt they should have an education and then when she got married, it was the conventional thing to just be the executive wife and she did that as well as a lot of volunteer work. My father, pretty much from my childhood, from when I was born, he was actually working for a a major Canadian communications company at that point, Southam's, which is no longer around, but he was their vice president of, of finance. So they handled newspapers across Canada, some TV, radio stations. And a number of, of things. So I guess, you know, my background is my like public relations, but I was exposed to communications in somewhat of a roundabout way at an early age through my father, even though he was in a different aspect of that. They were fairly strict and old fashioned because I think it was that English sort of proper thing. I wasn't told to say hello. I was taught to say, how do you do, which is a little odd coming out of the mouth of a six-year-old. So so I wasn't the coolest child. I walked on my toes at first and wanted to be a ballerina. And then I really liked art, but my family stressed that I had to be academic. Then I focused on that. Writing always came fairly easily to me, but I also had, I think, a good imagination so I could sort of picture things from different perspectives acting was an outlet. So when it came time to choose a career, it was a tough decision because I had fairly strong academic. My dream was to be an actress. But when you come from a very conventional family, that's not exactly a route that's supported. By that point, my sister was a nurse and my brother was a dentist. So a little bit of a black sheep, I guess.
0: So, You did go into acting though, did you not though?
1: Yes, in a roundabout way, right out of high school, it was around 1980 and that was a time when just having a BA wasn't cutting it anymore. So people really needed to specialize in in a specific career and I didn't want to just have a BA and be selling shoes. So I thought I should actually have a marketable skill. So I actually went into, studied graphic design out of high school. I went to Conestoga College and then transferred to Seneca, all both in Ontario and I got a graphic design illustration diploma. I could have taken a three-year diploma, but I just took a two-year one because on the summer after my second year, I had an opportunity to teach art at at one of the parks and rec programs. And they saw my artwork and they hired me to redo all their advertising. So I didn't need to go back to school for that intern year, which was basically an internship, which already landed. So the acting part, yeah, that was sort of the hold. I was thinking, okay, I need to actually have a marketable skill. But while I was actually studying design, at the end of my first year, Canada's Wonderland was sort of the first theme park, I think, that was coming up from the States and starting in Ontario. And they were looking for performers. So I actually went and auditioned. And I was more of a performer actor as opposed to a singer or a dancer. So they hired me to be a bird trainer performer. So... I worked with eight macaws and a bird trainer. So all the, these were incredibly talented macaws and worth a fortune. So I had to take care of the birds. So what I would do is I would clean their cages and schlep out with all my coveralls on and feed them. And then the coveralls would come off and I'd put on my stage outfit and do all my makeup and my hair and get mic'd up. I had a director, I had to do this little, it was a 20 minute show and I had to do different accents through the show and work with the birds to take them on a picnic. And one of the birds was on guard and then he was stalking the other one and shoots and then the other one plays dead. And then I had to do, you know, he's a real melon, yellow melon, I think with with the basketball. So I forget what the sports announcer was, but somebody who was big of the day. And that was my paid acting gig that I did while I was studying design. And then that springboarded into some other freelance work. So I worked for probably about a year, I guess, as a freelance graphic designer. And then I hired a good acting coach. And I auditioned to get into York University into their fine arts theater program, which was hard to get into. I got accepted. and So I was then a full-time university student with a major in theater. I loved university. I loved learning. So I didn't just love the theater courses. I really enjoyed my economics course. I really enjoyed my biology course, which had a huge genetics component. I, I really liked my literature course as well as the theater. But theater, is it's, it was a weird world. Like you couldn't just have a normal conversation with people. People would be singing in the courtyards at lunch. So it was, it was very focused that everything was on that. And I was kind of interested in beyond that. I also didn't have a lot of self-esteem And I was older at that point too. So I'd auditioned for a part for some of the plays on campus and people would say, you know, Leslie, you read really well, but I promised a part to so-and-so. And And I thought, okay, can my ego handle having doors slammed and looking for a job just about every day of my life? And then I thought, and in between, the only kind of work you could do was things like being a server and that, like you're limited on the jobs because you have to have a job that gives you the flexibility to do the auditions. And those jobs may not be as mentally stimulating as I wanted. Like I loved learning. I love learning about different things. So I had an A minus average after a year and a half. And I decided to quit university because I decided that my ego wasn't strong enough to be an actress full time. And so then I went back to design for about a year and a half to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And somewhere around that time, I'd read some description about what a public relations practitioner does and some of the skills that they were looking for. And it was being able to present well, being able to write well, being able to, at those days, understand the whole print production process, being able to do research, being able to deal with clients. Well, I'd already dealt with clients because I was a a freelancer. So I thought, okay, this could be a good career for me, except I was at first a little intimidated because it said you should be bilingual. And also, you should be a journalist first, because there really wasn't a clear career path in those days to go into public relations. And it certainly wasn't a university or a degree-granting program in those days. It was through community college. But first, I thought, okay, I'm not bilingual. I'm not a journalist. There's no way, even if I've got these other skills, I'm going to cut it. I I still didn't have much confidence. But I was working as a graphics coordinator in an engineering firm, and the wife of one of my colleagues was up in public relations at Spar Aerospace. And I had a chat with her one day and I said to her, well, are you bilingual? And she said, no. And I said, well, were you a journalist first? And she said, no. I had an undergrad and then I went and took a year certificate program at Humber College. So I decided to apply. And I thought it was a long shot, but you have to write, I think it was a writing sample as well as an interview, as well as submitting all your previous marks. And I got in. I think there was only two of us who didn't actually have university degrees. So I thought, okay, if I don't have a university degree, I've got to do really well in this program to make it. And so I worked like crazy. And I hadn't been a great speller because I didn't see the point in it when I was going to be an actress. So I had to learn to spell really well. And typing I'd taken one year and really worked to obviously get those skills back because I knew that typing was going to be essential for that career. But that's kind of how I ended up in it public relations. When you talk to people in the field, it's not one that there is necessarily a clear, straight career path. A lot of people get there in roundabout ways, often from journalism or background in undergrad in English. My background was certainly an unusual path to get there, but not going straight there was not unusual.
0: Fair enough. Before we pursue a little bit more about the public relations, if you could talk a little bit more about your graphics design education, what kind of courses did you take and what did that actually entail?
1: Sure. And, you know, bear in mind for anybody who's listening to this, this was in the early 80s. So graphic design has changed radically since then because of technology. What hasn't changed is you still need somebody to input the ideas. I don't think AI can do it perfectly yet. So I think there's still a career for people out there, but you had to learn how to problem solve. I mean there is a there is a design problem. So how do you how do you actually solve it? Topography was big. Type is way more complex than any of us can imagine. The way that gets put together, layout design, print production, those were some of the core. I'm I'm trying to think it's been a long time. That was at Conestoga because it was a graphics and advertising program. So again, the types of assignments we would have to do were working on technique. But some of it was to show the kinds of examples of applications. So one of the assignments was to find a face of a person, a photograph, and then break that into what we now see that's done with computers, the different tonal shades in the face. We had to do that in black and white, and then we had to do it in color. And in the color one, it was created as if it was a Time magazine cover. So you could actually start to see how this was going to apply in the real world. And some of the other things where we had an assignment every week where we just had to take an image and you'd have to trace it and you'd have to do a different kind of application with it. Like it might be all done in pointillism, like dots one week. In another week, you would be doing it with graphite and shading. Another week, you might be doing it in an airbrush application. So really working on getting your technique up, learning how to use a ruling pen, which was a really bizarre thing. It's like two points with paint between it. And it has to go absolutely... 90-degree angle. If you go slightly off on an angle, the paint will blotch and your work will be destroyed and you have to start over. Now, all that's changed with with technology. Those who study graphic design today don't have that sense of grief, but they still learn design fundamentals. They still learn strategy and the whole design thinking process that starts with ideations and then moves up and iterates, but then how to do that with a business challenge in mind, because it's not just, they taught us that graphic design is throwaway art. My first college, they didn't even have us put our name on our work because they said, no one ever sees your name. It's commercial. And it's not for an art, like a painting for your own benefit. It's for a, always for a client. So it's always got that business side, and you've always got to keep that in mind. Your ideal might be one thing, You've got, got to bring it back to what the business needs. Logo design—that was a big one. Corporate image design—that was a huge part. Because again, people like to say, "Well, I'll just you know develop a logo on a, a table napkin." Well, really, you go right back to the grid, the specific grid. It, it could be a square grid, it could be triangular, it could be a, a, a circular one. Radi- Radius—there's a special name for one that's got circles overlapping and qu- quadratus. So. You start with that and then each element that you put into the logo has to have a meaning and you have to be able to define that. So if you were to present that to a client, you can give them the breakdown. You don't just say, oh, I just put this together and it looks nice. Everything has to have a meaning, uh, why it's there and be serving a purpose.
0: So it's more than just somebody who's right lobed and very artistic. There is logic to it.
1: Yep, yep. Yep. And photography too. Photography was also one of my courses. But again, really important, even if you were not a photographer, it was important to understand the methodology and the best practices that a photographer would go
0: through. So you did that for two years, is that right? As a freelancer?
1: Yeah, two and a half years full time. And then occasionally I would take still, even when I was even doing PR later on, I would do the odd graphics project here and there.
0: Then you went into acting school. For a year and a half, I realized that. Which I think if people are listening to this and they're interested in acting school, I mean, can you give us a bit of a picture of it? But what kind of classes did you take?
1: So theater history, you took right off the top because you actually had to learn the evolution of history right back to the Greek and Roman theaters and understand the principles there, and which showed how theater had evolved and all the different styles. You had an actual acting course. You had set design because that was all a part of it as well. Because again, this course was designed so that not everybody was going to make it into the acting component. You had to audition to get into the latter part, which I left at that point. Some of those who decided not to would be going into stage set design or arts administration and some of the other areas. But even if you still stayed in the acting, that stream, it was still really important to understand costumes and set design and all the fundamentals and the principles that are being followed there. I mean, it makes you a better actor understanding what's going on with all these other departments. In acting, they stripped it right back so it was real. They don't encourage you to use accents or anything sort of campy or funky. Right away, it's basically dealing with emotions. So we spent an inordinate time on having to think of a particular event in our lives that was, I think, had a very strong emotional aspect. We didn't tell the prof what it was. So one of the assignments we had in acting class was stripping it right back to your core emotions. And we had to all think of a, a very emotional experience. We had all personally, we, each of us had personally had, and we first had to doing it in groups of you know partners or sometimes I think in threes. I know, and to start off, you would have to explain that to your partner without words. So it had to be in actions. Then later on you introduced words, but again, there was limitations and you didn't tell them what the actual situation was. So it probably limited as to what you could actually say, but expressing what was going on in other ways. So they would introduce new components to this scene that would evolve through each class layer after layer. So you would start to understand your own emotions and how you express them both in, in a verbal ways and in nonverbal ways when you're upset, when you're happy, when you're angry, whatever it was, and you could apply them to this scene. But this foundation was important because then you could start to understand your own reactions better so that when you're then studying another play that somebody else has written, that's an experience that maybe you've never had, you can find some way to relate the two together and then be able to replicate that kind of a a response that you had. Does that make sense?
0: I I think that... What you're describing to me, and for example, like when I watch talk shows and uh, when they're interviewing actors or actresses and they're describing how they get their mindset into a certain role, I think basically what you're describing to me is what they've described as well. You just think of certain parts of your life. Like for example, if you're playing a role where you're going to be really, really upset, that's the whole idea is to think of a part in your life when you're really, really upset and that's supposed to come out. It sounds to me like it's a lot of fun, but at the same time, I can't imagine that. On the spot, you got to think of something that happened to you traumatically and you got to let those emotions pour out of you.
1: That's hard. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be vulnerable, right? And it's taking that core piece, but a lot of people think with acting, oh, you jump right into being a clown or doing different accents and all that they strip it away. It's that core essence, understanding that core essence before you can move to these other pieces. It's that fundamental, but you're right. It's, you've got to take risks and and put yourself out there. And it's not always the easiest to
0: do. When you were taking the courses, you said you had an A minus average and you decided to leave. How easy was that decision to leave?
1: It wasn't an easy decision because this was my dream. Now, my family was not that supportive. They just thought it was something that my mother said, oh, all little girls want to be actresses. And I had a boyfriend who also talked me out of it at the time. He didn't turn out to be that great, so I think we broke up shortly thereafter. Had I had my husband, who I have now, I might have stayed. But I just didn't have the support. I felt so broken down. I mean, I did get some parts, I was balancing a number of other things to sort of think, okay, what really makes sense? So it was tough, but then from a logical point of view, I think I had some sound reasons. What I didn't like being called was a university dropout. That was hard because I'd always been incredibly academic and I didn't want people to think that I dropped out because I had to. It was a choice. I did speak to one of the other faculties of transferring over to mass communications and English, but at that point, the university I was at, York, was still a fairly young university. And I didn't want to have a degree just for the sake of having a degree and then be scrounging to try and find something to do with my life that I could actually earn a living. So that was an option. I think I always said I would go back to university someday. Interestingly enough, I never did go back to university to finish my undergrad. But 15 years after I was in PR, I applied to do an executive MBA and ended up you know, being accepted and did an executive MBA out at Royal Roads University in British Columbia. So... I did go back to school, but I jumped ahead at that point and did a master's as opposed to finishing the undergrad.
0: No, fair enough. We'll get into the MBA a little bit later on. So you decided when you were enacting that, okay, it wasn't an easy decision. You decided to finally leave it. And then somebody, if I remember right, somebody mentioned to you public relations. So you...
1: I read something about it, actually. That, that, that's
0: right. Okay. It
1: was Chatelaine, Chatelaine Magazine's Careers for Girls. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. there was some page that had public relations and I looked at all the skills and went, oh, okay, I could do this.
0: The, I forget which school it was again.
1: Could Humber you, College. I applied um, for a certificate program at Humber College, a community college in, in Toronto.
0: You went in there without a university degree. Obviously there was other people in there with university degrees. So were you nervous in, in attending this?
1: Well, my confidence was always a little bit, challenged. I didn't want people to look down on me because I didn't have a university degree. So I always felt that I had to hold my own and and work really hard. I was accepted at that point. So I wasn't nervous. I was just determined to not fail, to do as well as I possibly could. Because at this point, I decided that this was going to be the career that I was going to flourish in. And I wanted to make sure that I had everything in place to do so. So I could get intimidated easily because Yeah, I felt a little bit off, but I I don't, that may have been more self-imposed.
0: I'm trying to paint a picture of the program itself now. So this was a one-year program or a two-year program?
1: So one-year certificate program. And most of the people who took it were taking it after doing a, a degree. You didn't have to in those days. Interestingly enough, the other lady who was in the program with me who didn't have a degree, she quit midway. And the year after, they actually made it mandatory to have a degree before you took the program. But- It was just a one-year certificate program that was incredibly intense, tons of work, and you had an internship at the end of two months, and then you went into the field.
0: What kind of coursework did you have in this program?
1: There was case studies, which would be for both external or internal communications. External communications could be you're working for an organization organization, And it's a chemical organization and they're building a plant in this one city and all the residents are really up in arms and concerned about this. So how do you communicate with the local citizens and alleviate their fears about pollution and everything else that they've got about your organization and show them through communications that you're going to be a good, you know, corporate citizen and it will work out for the better? So that's an external example. Internal could be a whole reorganization, a new CEO coming in, a new leadership, rebranding, all that could be an internal piece. So case studies could be anything. You had a problem, but somewhat like the whole critical planning approach. So when you start off with objectives, measurable objectives, and you've got strategies that you follow, under those, you've got tactics when within that, not just your tactic, it's what's the audience that that's going to be delivered to. So if it's a newsletter, who's the audience for, and what are you actually trying to achieve? So it drills right down to that level of detail in this plan. And then it's how are you going to measure it? So media relations was a huge part of public relations when I first started. It still is, but less and less today because the media has been all fragmented with the rise of digital. But in those days, media relations was huge. So Again, that would usually be a component of the plan. And then there was writing courses. So writing for public relations. So writing news releases, writing feature articles, writing media advisories, all that. Fundraising was a course. There was a photography course. We actually had to do slide presentations and there was graphic design. It was more newsletter production and layout and newsletter production. There was, I think there might've been a presentations course. Script writing, so film and script writing. Anyways, that gives you a little bit of a flavor. So, you know, understanding the strategy at the top, because there's the whole methodology that public relations follows. It's not just like you start with, oh, we're going to do a video. It's why are you doing the video? What problem are you trying to solve? Who are you trying to communicate? So actually understanding that whole methodology. A lot of this methodology traces to what they call the race formula. So it's, you know, research. So you do your research about the various audiences, about the problem, about the information that you've got to communicate. Then you analyze it. Then the communications is actually the plan and delivering it. And then there's the evaluation part where you're measuring it. So did you get any results? Did a newspaper article come out about it? If you had an event to explain it to the community, how many people attended? Was there a form that they filled out to say what they thought? How many people filled out those forms? Those are all measured, you know, our evaluations. And they always say the ideal is to have a great, you know, a survey that you send out afterwards. But sadly, often public relations budgets still today are small. And so you don't have the money to do the really in-depth research afterwards to evaluate and show how good you actually, you know, successful you were. So you have to sort of make do with what you can. Digital has certainly changed that a lot and made it a little easier because you can now check clicks and comments and, and that type of thing. But so you have much stronger tracking mechanisms and tools at your disposal now with digital than you did before. But evaluation is still a very key part because otherwise it's just a bunch of pretty pictures or or nice little videos and that you're putting out. You've got to be able to show the business that you're making a difference and you've changed attitudes or persuaded or communicated the key information that you need to communicate.
0: One of the things that's popping in my mind, the way you're describing all this to me is uh, a person that would, A campaign manager for a politician, that's that's a perfect role for somebody who's in public relations. Is that accurate?
1: A campaign manager, I mean, that's one type of thing, certainly. I mean, it's an event management. It's almost, it's that political side. So you may want somebody who's got more policy background. Politics are certainly a part of PR, but that's almost like a specialization unto itself. (laughs) There's certainly a lot of areas of specialization in PR, but certainly that's one you find PR more in corporations. So there's product managers and they hire PR agency, or they may have somebody inside to represent the brand and deal with any reputation, the negative side, as well as the positive side. And you find them in not-for-profits, you find them in healthcare, you find them in, well, the military has a lot of public relations, like they're in every area lobbyists was one area that they told us was going to be a huge future of public relations more of the times lobbyists don't necessarily they call themselves more government relations and that kind of thing but that again is sort of a stream and we have a lot of lobbyists today who at the core what they do is to a certain extent public relations
0: okay so let's get more into your career and that will well describe what a person does with public relations so you graduated from this college or with the certificate. So your first job in public relations was so
1: it was an internship. It was a two month internship and everything I'd heard was a public relations agency, like ad agencies, deal with a variety of clients, a variety of, of challenges. You work incredibly hard, but you get a really good core set of skills that that you can use, you know, elsewhere and it really strengthens your skill set. So I really wanted to get an agency role, and so I did. I was hired by a company called Berger & Associates, which was owned by Ogilvy & Mather at the time, which is now Ogilvy. And after two months, or actually after six weeks, they they offered me a full-time job. So I went in there as, in my internship as the junior consultant, but by the time I finished, they actually promoted me to a consultant level. Nowadays, the levels are different. They're like account coordinator, account executive, consultant, senior consultant, adv- supervisor, all that. They sort of go a little bit different. But in those days, I went to consultant level with Ogilvy and Mather or P- Berger, the, the PR side of it. So I dealt with some pharmaceutical accounts. I launched this thing with, called Ecotrin, which which was enteric coated aspirins, which were in those days just been discovered to be used for helping reduce the risk of a a heart attack or a stroke. And so it was delicately promoting that. So writing the news releases, dealing with the media, sending information to doctors, doing a, a panel discussion that we had with media where we got a number of doctors who were affiliated with McMaster University and asked them about all the research behind this study about using aspirins to reduce the risk and taking an aspirin a day. That's a healthcare example, but that was one of the ones. Mobile phones were really new. So we actually had the Bell Cellular account, which is now Bell Mobility. So working on launches of mobile as mobile was increasing. So there's the first ceremonial call and then building up from there as it moved into different regions. And as people were learning about mobile phones, so were they safe? What was the risk? So dealing with all the issues that were involved with that. Timex watches. I was the Canadian rep for PR rep for Timex. And so, again, that was a lot of media relations, but the new watches, so sending them out to targeting key reporters so reporters could then review them and photograph them and get interviews and answer, get questions answered. They would get exclusive access. To these watches before they hit the market, or when they were just or first on the market, you would send them off researching stylists who deal with models, photo shoots, and that kind of thing. And so they could be used as part of a model's outfit, so piggybacking on other projects that were out there. So again, those are just a couple of the ta- some of the tactics. You'd find whatever you needed to get that news out. I dealt with issues when when suddenly there's a product recall or there's risks obviously a little bit with with cellular mobile phones. I tended to gravitate more to tech and healthcare accounts. The fashion ones they were okay, but it, again, I guess I've run out of words to, to write about fashion and that it wasn't necessarily my thing to write about. But I really liked well, I liked healthcare too because I felt that there was some value in it beyond just making shareholders rich. So if you were actually being able to communicate a message that had some actual benefit on on human beings that I felt that that was fulfilling. So that was the kind of work I did in an agency and so I did that for 4 years until I started a family because you work crazy hours in agency. There's no unions to protect you. So if they want the work done, you do it. If the client calls on, you know, Friday at 4:30 of a long weekend and wants something, you do it. Your personal life is is challenging. I got married in the middle of my internship which I'd been engaged before I went into the program. I'm not sure if I would have ever met a husband otherwise because some of the people in it, you just work all the time. Your social circles and your friends and your life, so much of it's tied up in the business because that's such a huge part of your life. So you really have to find aspects of it that you love because you're doing so much of it. There's a lot of it that's drudgery and grueling and, and brutal, rewriting stuff a gazillion times. And then you get it perfect. And then the client wants to make edits that don't make sense to you, but they're the client. You try and persuade them otherwise, but at the end of the day, they're the client. You have to find the positives in that kind of a career because it is hard work, but it's fulfilling. I I never get tired of the rush that you get when you see a story that you've pitched to a newspaper, magazine, TV station, radio, that actually then breaks out as a real story. Or when the reporter calls you back and says, yeah, I'm interested. I want to do it. And then you're involved in the whole process. And then when you can actually see it, Uh, being recognized um, by that third-party media outlet, it's a great feeling.
0: When you worked at this firm, just if you give us a synopsis, how you work with a client, does the client come up with the ideas of what they may want done, or, or is it you, or is it kind of back and forth?
1: Usually it's us. It's basically on the PR firm to come up with the ideas. They come to you with the problem or the challenge. We've got a new product that we want to launch. We We're launching this new ice cream. The market we're targeting because it's sophisticated flavors is we want it for people who are like 30 years and up. We want people who are athletic. Here's the competitors that we're up against. So they give you the whole problem and then you have to develop a whole communications plan and strategy. Sometimes you actually go to a few firms to develop these strategies and then it's a competitive situation where you all pitch at once. And they decide who they want. So a lot of time is is spent on new business development. And sometimes you don't even hear back from them on the pitch, which is frustrating. Now, you'll put in a number of ideas in this strategy. And the client's not necessarily going to go for all of them. Some of them won't work. Some of them, they you know they can't do sometimes you ask for a budget sometimes they don't give you the budget and so then they'll say oh the bottomless budget you can do whatever you want and then you give them the plan they say we like it but we can't afford to do this we can only do this da 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 and oh we have this limit i did one for a lottery for a hospital a major hospital but because they were so well known and popular they limited us in terms of you can't go to that media outlet you can't go to that media outlet you can't interview that person. You can't use that in the campaign. So there's limits around it too. So you've got to sort of navigate in between and come up with the ideas. Now, occasionally a client will come back and say, we think it would be really good if we can have a video in here because that would appeal to da, 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 or we've seen that work well. And and you assess it. I mean, sometimes their ideas are wacky and won't make any sense. Sometimes their sound and you can say okay yeah let's do it that way but let's let's steer it towards this audience cuz here's why we think you're going to get the best results here but generally the ideas that's what they come to you for they they're looking for ideas
0: and and labor so okay you've given us a good synopsis of uh what you did with that company uh I can't I can't pronounce it can you, can you pronounce? Oh, Berger
1: and Associates which was owned by Ogilvy and Ogilvy is still around today.
0: Ogilvy, Ogilvy is an,
1: Ogilvy is an international integrated marketing firm. I don't know what they actually brand themselves as now, but it's everything.
0: So Ogilvy, you were there for four years then. And then you did say a few minutes ago that you left because you wanted to start a family.
1: Well, I left when I had a child and I didn't go back after Matt leave because I decided that lifestyle and working all the time would be really hard when you're trying to raise a child. And I was so committed to my career. I felt that if it came down to my family or my work, my work was always going to win. So I didn't want to put myself in that situation. So I left agency at that point and I actually went to a not for profit for about a year. And then I went to what well, was Ontario Hydro then. It's now called Ontario Power Generators. So I went into the whole power in- industry and worked on energy management. Media relations. So early days of sustainability um, and conservation in terms of working. I was working for the commercial and the industrial companies' portfolios. So they were being given grants by Hydro to reduce their megawatts. And I had to package these great stories about these organizations that were taking all these initiatives to reduce their energy use in the way that then the media would find them compelling to communicate both in mainstream and newspapers, as well as in trade publications, where you'd be profiling the individual organizations and their sector and how they were doing it in, say, in the pulp and paper sector so that others could see it and say, oh, well, if they've saved this, maybe we can do the same. And there was events as well, like events are huge part of pr
0: so you worked at hydro for how many years was that again
1: so i move around a lot in pr and often they used to say to you "You move from agency to client side and then you'd go back to agency and that's what you had to keep bouncing back and forth to get your salary up i don't think i quite did that but i was at hydro for only two contracts i did two four-month contracts and they wanted to hire full-time but then they had a freeze on full-time I was okay with that because it was incredibly unionized to the point that it was really hard to get things done. If I wanted to hire a designer, I would have to write a letter to the union steward and say I need a designer to do XYZ, even though it was a job that was kind of out less than $200 and they had a policy. They said, "Oh, we can't take anything inside that pays less than 500." So they'd already told me they couldn't do it, but I still had to write a letter to the union steward to hire a freelancer or a graphic designer external to do the job. So really hard when you've got that kind of a culture and those layers of extra processes to get anything done. So it was a great experience on working with unions and and how they're structured, et cetera. But I don't think I would have wanted it for... A great length of time it was and again it was pretty brutal after coming from an agency where it's just like do whatever you need to do to get it done
0: that's what sort of popped in my mind I, I, I like the term that you used a, a couple of minutes ago on um, the client side and the agency side I never thought about it like that so you obviously worked on both sides it must have been a bit challenging coming from the agency side to go to the client side then from the client side did you go back to the agency side
1: Not immediately. I worked on client side a lot. Moving over is straightforward, but moving over to a really heavily unionized environment is huge contrast. You know, client side in some ways is a little more civilized. You sometimes get your evenings back, not always, but you can have a little bit more of a life. So there's a benefit there. But again, it's the same organization day in and day out. So you don't get the variety you get in agencies. So, and you're also now a cost center versus a profit. Center. So when you're in an agency, you're generating revenue. So you're valued because you're a profit center. Suddenly, when you go to client side, you're seen as a cost center, which is not in organizations viewed as, as favorably and doesn't quite get the same perks. So it's a different structure on each side with pros and cons. So yeah, I didn't stay at Hydro that long and went into an editor's role for as telemedicine. It was, was affiliated with um, the whole Toronto Hospital Network, which is now UHN where they had, long before digital was coming about, but it was by phones, you would have people who would almost do these conference calls that would be kind of webinars. You could say you'd be on the phone and you'd send the slides ahead of time so that the people could be reviewing it and seeing the slides as well. And we'd bring in speakers. Sometimes we'd have remote, sometimes we'd have them on site. So I was an editor in the sense that I developed the whole course curriculum programs that came out twice a year. But I also facilitated various groups um, within the healthcare field, so a group from dietitians that we would recruit to help provide you know input for the curriculum. I was also doing promotions, develop flyers that they could fax out good old fax machines to various hospitals and various participants who had come to their sessions before to promote the various sessions. So I did that, and that was an interesting. it was a great model. It was a challenging organization, that one because I had a boss who would make changes at the ninth hour on things when they're actually at the printers and the pressman has to pick it up and start making editorial changes. Whereas in the pressman was not a writer. So you don't know what kind of changes they're going to have. It was very ninth hour. And again, at this point, I've got a family, I've got a child. So I did that less than a year, but I provided help to them recruit somebody else. So I left on good terms, but I said, I can't do this to my family. So I left that and then I was going to step back and then do some freelance. And I had I had a conference project to do some work there, some pitching and get, getting them some coverage to promote their conference. So okay. it sounds
0: like you worked at that one firm for eight months. Yeah, I
1: worked at Hydro for eight months. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then I went to this other firm. Well, I went as an editor.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I,
1: that was less than a year. I went back to freelance on my own and it was not that long. I was doing well. I maybe was a month or something off. My husband's in IT and he worked for... Coopers and Lybrand, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, and the tech writer had quit. And they said, well, who can you replace? And he says, well, I don't know, John's wife's a writer. <laughs> and I'd always been fascinated with, again, I'd worked on tech accounts before. I was fascinated with the whole idea of technical writing and technology. So I took a two-month contract to be a technical writer, and I ended up staying for five years. So I call this my IT sabbatical. I was a technical writer. I was a business documentation analyst, they called it. So Kind of what we would almost talk about as a user experience researcher today, because a lot of the applications were developed in-house. So I would deal with the developers and evaluate the screens and the processes and find out the buttons and that kind of thing. What would be more intuitive to the end user? And obviously helping with all the writing there as well and and the documentation, but also providing that input on the development of the applications. Then there was a whole restructuring and they evolved and they moved me over into the training department so i actually took course design curriculum design courses and delivery and became a hands-on technical trainer as well as training in other courses as well we did the whole orientation session for new hires i still did i still did the odd article the odd news article into internal communications i actually was doing a newsletter that would go across to all the offices across the organization talking about what each was doing from a technology point of view so there was kind of an internal communications pr part to it but my primary focus was being now a technical trainer. I did three years at Cooper's and Lye in the main as a, again, on the, the cost center side. So you're on the admin side. And when you're working in a corporation, if you're in the cost center, you're not valued as much. So you don't get the same perks. You don't get the same level of respect. And yet there was a consulting division and they kept wanting to use my work. So. I actually tried the conventional route to apply to the consulting division, but again, they were happy keeping me where I was. So then I applied for a job with a company that was actually in the process of a merger with Price Waterhouse, which, and then Price Waterhouse was merging with Coopers and Lybrand So while I sort of resigned from one job, indirectly, I was still with the organization because of all the mergers, if that makes sense. So because Coopers and Lybrand was now, my former company was merging with Price Waterhouse, which had just eaten a little company that I'd been hired by. So I stayed in when I was back on the consulting side. So now I was dealing with clients again, but developing training packages for them, particularly for the implementation of SAP. This was in the late 90s when everybody was really worried about what they called the whole Y2K thing. So as soon as we hit the new millennial, early computers were designed just to have Two digits for years because everything had always been nineteen something. So you didn't bother with the one and the nine. Suddenly, that was all going to change when we introduced when we hit the two thousands. So there was all kinds of doomsday predictions that all our technology was going to fail and the world was going to be a disaster. So to buffer themselves against that, a lot of big corporations were implementing this enterprise wide computer systems, and one of the brands was SAP. So. And SAP was not like a software product that's just off the shelf. It had to be customized for each organization needs. So it was a huge project team that went in and did this work. And they needed someone to actually you know, develop the documentation, the training and communicate to people how to use it. So I did that for two years and then moved up to being a, a project lead and then a project manager. And that was good. But I missed PR because I missed the connections with the outside world. I missed dealing with all these varieties of communications channels and events. And as cumbersome as that work is and detailed, it's exciting too. And I missed that. So I got an opportunity to go back into PR that came up out of nowhere through a referral with the Toronto District School Board, and they needed a media relations communications officer. So I jumped back into PR. That was in 2000 and have stayed there sort of as a core ever since. I'd always been able to build relationships with reporters so that it's a fine balancing act with a journalist because they have a job to do. You have a job to do. They're not going to write exactly what you want them to write. So you've always got to find that middle ground. And that's what I had to do at the school board. I had to find the middle ground with them. One of my mandates was to get the good news stories out because with a large school board, there's always challenges too. So a lot of issues management, I had to do that as well, but helping communicate What was going on in the school board that was positive, like the academic awards that were being achieved, the great projects that some of the schools were doing and what the kids were doing. And that was probably one of my most interesting jobs and fulfilling too, because I remember getting a news story, Terry Fox poster that one, one child in one of the schools had designed. And this was a school for children who had special needs. And this kid had designed this poster that had been recognized and given an award And I remember working really hard to get the news story out. And I remember saying to my son, what mummy did today is important because here's a little boy who's got some challenges in this world and probably doesn't get a lot of perks and benefits and people acknowledging what he does well and making him feel good. And we were able to get a story in the newspaper today that talked about how well he had done and how creative his poster was. And that makes the job worthwhile. That was my entree back into PR it was contract again. I, and then I had a chance to go back to agency with technology and venture capital firm, which I thought would be good. Turned out it, it wasn't the greatest move, but I did that for a while. And then, then I went freelance on my own for probably about a year and a half. And then a former manager recruited me into Bell. So, I mean, it's, uh, and that was, that's, that's only taking us to the early 2000s. So, I got 20 years to cap after that. So
0: it sounds like to me, like you, you were just doing a lot of contract work and it sounds to me like in PR, that, that's what it would be. What, am, I, am I reading that right?
1: It's a mix and it depends on the economy and it depends on what you're interested in. I didn't find contract work bad. I was okay with it. My husband was employed full-time. So, and then latterly, when my husband was in consulting, I was full-time. So, so as long as one of you is full-time and you can juggle the benefits, I wasn't determined to get full-time. I wasn't determined to get contract. I went to an opportunity that sounded interesting and fulfilling where I felt I could also make a difference. But, but you're right. I've talked about some that were, well, when I worked for uh, Coopers and Lybrand, that was full-time. Olgavie was full-time. When I went to Bell, which is where I was recruited after the school board, Bell Canada, that was full-time. And I did that for about three years and then after that, I went from Bell, freelancing, but only for, I think, about six months. And then I went back to an agency, an agency in Toronto, Maverick PR, when I was the vice president there of technology and business business services. And I did that for a couple of years, full time. But again, agency is brutal. I was in my 40s at this point, point, and it was great, and it was fulfilling, but it's a tough life. And you go, okay. Okay. Is this the greatest thing? Because again, I've, got, I've still got a family who I'm not seeing. And after two years, I had an opportunity to go to Pet Value and I was the director of graphics and communications, which was kind of interesting because I could draw on my graphic design background there as well as my communications background. And it was, it was more of a focus on marketing communications, which was also too what the Bell Canada role was more marketing communications versus PR. But marketing communications is kind of a hybrid. It's like a mix of advertising and PR. But what you're doing generally is you're representing products, perhaps more so than the organization. So a little bit of a different discipline, media relations, that's, that's on the PR side. You do advertising, paid advertising, paid content, events, that kind of thing.
0: You strike me as a person that goes with the wind. If something's interesting, you'll go with it. Definitely moved around a lot. And you're indicating that it could be part of the job. Can, can people work in PR and just be at a place for ten? Th- I mean, if you worked at, at Hydro, Ontario Hydro, could, you could have stayed there as long as you wanted. Could, could you have not?
1: A lot of people in, in PR do move around. There are cases of people going to a company for a long time, but it's not as common. And I don't want to sound like I was flippant. I often would achieve, you know, certain mandates and goals and I would leave on good terms and the timing and everything else. Organizations are changing all the time. Also too, you know how hard you're going to work. So you want something that is more than just a paycheck. You want to make sure that you're finding something fulfilling out of it.
0: It sounds like you would enter a company, work on a project, or if you were working for an agency, you would work in an array of projects, but you just came to a point where, okay, your life. You wanted a life change. In some cases, if you worked for an agency, you knew you were working a little too hard. You wanted to have, you wanted to have a family, so you decide, okay, well, it's time to move on to something else. And it sounds like you just sort of have that personality where you're just willing to move on. That's it. Sure. And well, yeah. some people aren't.
1: There were some saves. I, I left a job with nothing immediately. But there's so many stories out there. People who are absolutely miserable, but they stay because of the benefit, or they stay because. fear of of looking for something else. Interestingly enough, yeah, I gave up acting because I didn't want to be looking for a job all the time. And yet I've switched over and revamped, ramped up many times over.
0: That's true. Since we're going, we're talking about your career. So you've meandered quite a bit. You've gone from firm to firm for good reasons. And we've established that. But at some point though, too, I know at the beginning you mentioned you did an MBA, an executive MBA. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like what led you up to that and what made you take that? And what was that like?
1: I did that after I'd left the school board and I was freelancing. Again, I'd always said I'd go back to university. But at that point in my life, it didn't make much sense to go and just finish a BA. But I knew that I was hitting ceiling at some points. At some points you're hitting the glass ceiling, not because I was female, but because I didn't have a degree. And I felt that there were some opportunities I was being blocked on and being perceived differently because I didn't have a degree. So looking at what is the most beneficial degree that I can study right now that will actually complement my career and be valued. And, you know, there executive MBAs existed at that point, years before you needed to have the undergrad, but there were opportunities to do it without. I had to get reference letters submitted. I had to submit a bunch of transcripts. I had to write an essay and, and everything else. But this, I think there's a few executive MBA programs where I didn't actually have to write a GMAT I was able to get in. I, I'd i already, at this point, I'd taken an intro to accounting course when I went to an accounting firm and it was only college, but I got 100%. So I thought, okay, I can maybe figure out this whole accounting stuff because of course, financial literacy is so key in an MBA. So being able to do it part-time was great. So I could still keep working. I was really happy that I could do it at Royal Roads, which was out in BC, because it really exposed me to another part of Canada and other industries. So with Ontario being... hub for the financial sector in Canada, you don't really learn about the fisheries industry and you don't really learn about the lumber industry and and all these other sectors that play a key role in our economy. So it was great to actually go out and study out West. It was a mix. It was three three three-week residencies on site in British Columbia. And then in between, you would take two online courses a term. And it was great to have those skills that would complement PR because the people who agree on these plans and sign the checks, they're the executives. And so they've got this methodology. This is what they value and particularly finance. So to be actually able to communicate with finance and justify your work. For example, one of the biggest aha moments was finding out that we call it in the marketing world brand. In the finance world, its I think it's pretty close to what they would call goodwill. So when an acquisition takes place and all the assets are picked up and integrated and you when you do all the financial analysis of it, there actually is a line item called goodwill and there is an actual fiscal amount that's attributed to it. And that's what your PR team and your marketing team have contributed to that whole goodwill aspect. So it was great to understand that there were linkages. The terminology may not be consistent across the organizations, but they there's definitely common ground on what they represent. So understand those vocabularies and being able to speak and and understand what financial statements were and, and what each one addressed was beneficial. Being able to understand some of the whole methodology in terms of competitive sustainable advantage and that whole business strategy aspect, the government relations, the government side, business and government. I think there was a course we took there was the whole research side, and, that would, and then statistics, obviously, within that. So it was great to have this skill set to complement what I already had.
0: Okay. So you said there was three three-week residencies, and so that was three semesters. So it was a year-and-a-half program?
1: No, it was a two-year program. So you started with a three-week residency, and then you'd be taking these courses, like maybe, say, four months or so. And then sometimes there might be a little break before the next residency. I think there was one point there was a three-week break. Then you would have another three weeks. And then you would do another couple of courses and then another three-week residency. And then you would do a consulting project. So the consulting project or what some people would call the capstone at the end of the MBA. So you were still in touch with the university and you had to have an advisor that they had to approve who was based in your city or local to you, but then you also had somebody who oversaw that and you had certain reporting pieces that you had to provide as your, you know, capstone or consulting project evolved. And once that was approved at the end or defended or whatever, that combined with all the other work to give you the qualifications to earn your MBA.
0: So then in a nutshell, it sounds like to me, like you thought the MBA was worthwhile. It was two years that was well spent.
1: Yes, I wish I had time to nurture some of the relationships more, but I, you know, you're in there for three weeks and you're working day and night when you're on site, so it was tough to build that. I think it would have been nice. I should have maybe been okay with some B pluses and worked less hard for A's and socialized a little more at times. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty.
0: So then, anybody who's considering doing an MBA, what did you learn from that experience, and what would you like to pass on to people that are again that are considering it?
1: I think you want to make sure that you have a supportive family because it is going to take a huge amount of time. And I think you need to clear your schedule and just know that you're going to, if you go out once a week, you're lucky. Well, actually do plan for that. Plan just to go out once a week, just for your own sanity, but don't plan on loading your schedule up. Brush up on things ahead of time. They had some prep courses that we took. So some things just refreshing on statistics and economics and that type of thing. Make sure your employer is supportive. I started it when I was freelancing, and then when I went to Bell, I told my boss going in that this is what I was doing, and she was supportive, because you're going to be juggling a lot, so you need to have that support, or you're not going to make it. I think with the financial courses, they were tough, especially doing it remotely, so you had management accounting, and then you had finance. When I did the first one, the management accounting, just on my own, and it was done, it was virtual, so you listened to the presentations and they would give some examples and then you would have all these problems. And it doesn't sound like much. You might have four questions and you'd spend a whole week on doing that because it was consolidations and lots of spreadsheets and, and those pieces. I found it tough when I started doing finance accounting and financial accounting and so did a lot of my classmates. So what we did, and here's the big recommendation, is we found a graduate who was strong in this area. I think his actual core area of expertise was was finance or accounting. And we set up a study group, as it were. And so we met on Saturdays and we would bring our problem out and we would review it with him and he would sort of go through and help us with, we would still have to do all the work and the formulas, but it's just understanding it because it is kind of cryptic when you're doing it virtually. And these were the early days of obviously virtual learning. So it's really helpful to have somebody on the ground and have that study group so you can discuss and understand these problems and and. Take them apart and really understand the, the, core, the pieces that you're doing and, and each, each part and, and why. So that was a huge benefit. And I didn't need it for a lot of the other courses, but I certainly needed it for a number of found that was really beneficial for the finance and accounting courses.
0: Okay. So when you graduated, you were still working at Bell, were you not? Yes. And did it help you with your career at Bell?
1: I think it gave me a bit more respect. I didn't stay that long after it, Bell, and I left because it just was a lot of restructuring. And while I was ranked top talent, so I couldn't get a package, other people were being let go and that kind of thing, and things were shuffling around, and it wasn't the same organization that I'd been brought into. And the work had changed, and Bell changed. It wasn't satisfying anymore. So. I don't know if my MBA helped me there, but it helped me when I left because it gave me credibility. It gave me that credibility that I didn't have before when I went into other organizations. So certainly I think it helped me get a, a director's role at Win Retail. It helped me, you know, have a VP role at, at an agency when it was my portfolio was technology and business services. So it gave me that credibility with clients. And occasionally too, I would do my actual work too. There were certain things and aha moments with my calculations that I'd come back. I remember in one and you know, I was doing this report, and I said, "Okay, what about this? Your costs are less than this." Oh, I didn't know that, really. And we crunched the numbers and said, "Oh, you're right." You know, so yeah, it was it was kind of neat to be able to, again, when you're meeting the other department halfway and and being able to understand what they value.
0: So after you left Bell, where, where did you go then?
1: I went to Maverick, PR, and I was a VP, as I said, of technology and business services. So I worked. Yeah, one of my clients was a big. Canadian business law firm that's now been absorbed elsewhere, but it had offices across Canada. You might be interested to know Calgary was one of his most successful offices because of the whole oil and gas sector. <laughs> Fraser Milner Casgrain was the business firm, the law firm. So that was a key client of mine. I also had a project to promote the territories for economic development as des- tourism destinations. And then also promoting the Canada games, which we did with an ad agency. So those were you know, two big things that st- stood out.
0: So you were, at, you were at this agency for how long then? Two years. Two years. Okay, then, then you moved on to? Pet value. So after you left pet value, it's just, you, you've had so many opportunities. That's why I'm rolling along with your life here because you seem to, again, moved along. So after pet value, where did you go then?
1: I did, went back to doing a lot of freelance projects and freelance work. I also did some teaching then. So I was an adjunct professor for an international development program that was held at Humber College and they needed someone to teach a course in communications, advertising and fundraising. So I taught that. also taught the PR program at Durham College. So I did that as well as doing client work on the side. So I actually went, worked with my former president from Pet Value and launched an organic dog food made out of sprouted seeds as, as sort of the core. And so I did that. I went to health cares. I worked at Trillium Hospital. So I did a contract there. And then I did some work with community care access centers, which is home, home and community care, what they called them out in Ontario. I did work on contract there for one of the sites, Mississauga Halton. And then I did work for the actual whole umbrella organization. And I went into a management consulting firm, which did a lot of work with municipalities in terms of waste and water planning, environmental work, some work with Ontario Power Generators. So back into the energy sector, we had a gas plant that we we did work for. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I went back to school again because I hadn't been to school for a few years.
0: So you went back to school. So what did you take now?
1: So I took interactive media management. I'd started working in digital probably back in my agency days at Maverick when I was representing the law firm, creating web pages that were for media, and then sort of had evolved from there. But I wanted to study digital in more depth. I wanted to have a better grasp, too, of some of the coding and the technical aspects of it as well. So I took a year certificate program in interactive media management, and that was full-time. So I stopped working for a year. And then when I left that... I worked for a game developer. I did a contract with a game developer and did a lot of research and analytics for them, as well as some communications. Because again, I still hadn't really ever escaped my communications side. Then I went back and actually did a full-time job at community care access centers. There was a little bit of digital for that, but mostly it was PR. But by that point, I was running out of money (laughs) because these little digital projects where the budgets are, you're lucky if there's any kind of a budget there. So it's getting financially a bit challenging. So went back to full-time, working for a boss that I had worked for since 2000 in community care access centres until Ontario changed and they were merged into what they called patients first and they got rid of all their community care access centres for healthcare. My job was safe and I still stayed, but now I was moving over to becoming a civil servant and there was a whole different model and a whole different set of priorities which were not aligned with with my values and priorities in terms of what strategic communications was and, and what value we could provide. So I left there and I built a website for a hospital. It was a stronic cancer center. I went and did some work for a not-for-profit, more pure communications. Not So I did a little bit of digital there. Sorry, I did a campaign on autism for them in social media. I left CCAC in around June of two thousand. 2017. Did some contract work through 2018. Early 2019, I was brought in on a contract to develop a website for the Ontario Chiropractic Association, which is where I am now. They also pulled me in to do some work on marketing for a new software solution Just backup support on communications and a number of other things. So it took a little longer to do the website because I was doing all this other work. Once the website was launched, they did have a position opening up, a full-time position. And I liked the team. Again, I was back working now for the manager I'd worked for before, which is a VP. It was actually the same CEO who I'd worked for out at community care access centers. So I knew the climate. It was healthcare, which I like. It was downtown Toronto. A lot of the things that I found appealing. It was management, so it was manager, digital communications. So I was hired. So that's where I am now. And so my focus is digital communications, but still I use my other communication skills as well, except that I'm responsible for all their social media and their website and trying to obviously make it search engine optimized, the analytics that are involved. Launching a podcast obviously fell right into that. So that's where we met. And that's why I was taking the course so that I wanted to research it well before I launched it. Anyways, that's where I'm at. So yes, that ties into my work and perfectly what I'm doing now,
0: right? Why don't you give us a minute or two, a synopsis of where you're at. Well, you've already told us where you're at. Basically, what's it like there? You obviously told us you like the people that you work with, but give us a more of a day-to-day outlook on what do you do there on a day-to-day basis?
1: I think in every PR scenario, what you start off your day is you look at the news clippings. It doesn't matter where you are because what's happening in the outside world is going to impact you. So I don't want to say you stop and take your time to do it. It comes through an email and you make sure that you try to look at them because that could impact what you're doing today. If there's an issue or a crisis or something changes or new policies come out, you're always going to be influenced by government in some way or another. Now I'm healthcare and it's regulated healthcare, but it's not covered by the government, but you're still impacted. So that is probably a core thing that part of the day that happens, but it's brief. I mean, it could be five minutes or it could be a lot longer if something's you know gone amiss. If there's an issue or a crisis, then it's all hands on deck to deal with that. Other things will vary from day to day, and it depends what projects you have. Certainly two of my core projects right now is I oversee the whole editorial of my CEO's blog, which is monthly. And that's a pretty intense one targeted at decision makers in terms of the decisions that you know we're making and why we're making them and how it's going to impact Ontarians and that. So that's one thing I do. The podcast I do, I manage the website. So people are always wanting new content on the website. Even if they just give me a page, it's working with somebody, but it's still figuring out where we're going to put it and what we're going to do with it. Because you don't just slap up content. Obviously it's a lot of writing. So it's often writing content for certain sections. If it's clinical at all, I want to, I send them by a chiropractic consultant and they'll come back with edits. So, but there's other pieces that that will develop. So we've got an arthritis campaign on right now. So there's content that's going on and there's an ad campaign that ties in with it. So there's ads that are out that are saying, if you've got arthritis, It really helps to have a team to manage it and having a chiropractor in your circle of care. And the message for this is we want people to know that chiropractors can work with their doctors. So there's ads that will go out that will tell that we've been working on the campaign that will tell you that, but then it directs them to a page that's for patients. So if you've got arthritis, how can this help you? And also resources that are going to help you. What tools are available for you? What questions do you have that we can answer that we try and answer the questions, right? What can a chiropractor do? How does it actually help your arthritis? There's a campaign out now targeted at medical doctors. So there's a page there. So again, what's of value to them? We have a lot of communications. We have about 3,800 members and it's like the fourth largest chiropractic Association in the world, so you've got a lot of members to provide information to. So there's a weekly bulletin. So often there'll be content that will go out for that, but there'll be sections that go up on the website. For now, we've got just released content uh, announcing the new board of director because it's run by a volunteer board. So writing that communication, so writing what's going to go on the website, what how what are the posts going to be like that are in social media that are going to promote that. We have a guide that's going goes out for new chiropractors, uh, new grads. And so that's done online. There's a, the digital version online, but there's also a PDF copy. So working with a designer to get the photos put in place and they've got the layout, we've provided the copy. But then it's going through to make sure if there's any errors and mistakes that have been put in that we get them fixed. Any changes, we're doing this not just with our association, we're doing it with the chiropractic college as well as the National Association, because they've got a page in this booklet too. So making sure they're happy. And sometimes people are not, sometimes people are not as articulate on the change as they want. Oh, I don't like this. I think that this should have more of a, a reference on this. So it's not always just a one-word change, right? Sometimes you have to reframe something or add something, or they say, Oh, you know what? We've just had this, you know, research study that's out. Can we add that in? So they'll send you something visual, something that's about a thousand words, and you need to then suddenly distill that into three paragraphs. It's meaningful. And if it's medical or clinical, you're gonna have to send that by a subject matter expert and make sure it's accurate before it gets put out there. So it's not just writing well. It's ensuring what you're saying is accurate from a clinical perspective. Even the photographs, you have to check those. So if you use stock photos in anything, you can find stock photos online that someone's taken of models in medical offices, and they might be physiotherapists, they might be looking like chiropractors, but they don't necessarily have a clinical person guiding them. So we may think that the photo looks good. You want to run those photos by someone who's a chiropractor who can tell you, well, No, that's not realistic. They wouldn't have their neck that way or whatever. So you've got to do that level of scrutiny through everything. So that's one of the projects. We have a a big initiative right now, the Opioid and Pain Reduction Collaborative, because of course there's an opioid crisis throughout North America and certainly Canada hasn't escaped that. 50% of the people who are on opioids, often it starts with with a back injury and the doctor prescribes them meds and they get addicted. Some studies show that if you go to a chiropractor first people find a way to manage their pain. So we're trying to get the message out so they're not just masking it with medication. We need to get that message out to the doctors and nurse practitioners. So we have a clinical tool that we've developed to go out to them and we're working on initiatives there. But it's hard to reach these groups, particularly because they're sometimes cynical to chiropractors. They look at it as alternative medicine. So We've started doing some work with the Nurse Practitioners Association of Ontario, and we're working on developing and presenting a webinar is part of their education series. So we've got our chiropractic consultant working on that. And we've also brought in a nurse practitioner who understands what we're doing to work on that. So yes, I worked with them to develop the whole abstracting objectives, but then there's a call to discuss what content they're thinking. So then I pulled together a presentation with sort of a framework with some of the notes of what they're talking about, and then others that they needed to fill in and then sent the back to them. And they'll have put in their clinical pieces on it, I may have to massage the wording a little bit so that it's a clean presentation, and then I'll probably send it to a designer to get it so it looks slick and, and clean when they actually present it. That's so education, but it's education that's got a, a PR component to it, because it's, again, reaching this audience, but through a medium that they're familiar with and they find credible.
0: With the description you just gave me, it sounds like there's a lot of components that you deal with. It's just not just just media. It's, there's a lot yeah. of areas. No, absolutely so, And then i'm just watching the time so with your life career so far it looks like you're not stopping anyhow it looks like you're you're pretty ambitious person i don't think you're slowing down at all with all the things you've done and of course people that i'm I'm catering to the people that are listening to this podcast right now because this is the career guy and people are interested in careers and you've definitely given a lot of insight to your career what have you learned that you would like to pass on to other people. What are the key things that you've learned that if somebody wants to get into, like, for example, like acting or graphic arts or PR, or is just, just listening to this going, well, I don't even know what I want to do. I have absolutely no clue what I want to do. I mean, of all the things you've done, especially with the way you've meandered, I mean, not meander, but you are not afraid to jump from one thing to another or from one position to another position. It seems like you're very bold with that. What have you learned that you'd like to pass on to people that are listening?
1: I still believe you should find a career that has positive things that you actually enjoy and things you're good at. I don't believe that you should just look for one that's perhaps gonna be lucrative. You're not gonna get super rich in any of the careers I've described, but you could certainly make a good living. And if you read about any of those careers, well, if you read about graphic design, if you read about PR, they'll say it's incredibly competitive and it is. But if you do it well, And you work really hard and you're passionate about it and you find the positives along the way, you'll develop tools to to manage time and, and try and manage clients and expectations. I'm still not perfect. I tend to try and say yes. I hate saying no to people and it's a tough one, but I think it can be satisfying. I mean, certainly with PR, it's like lifelong learning that you get paid to do because you're constantly learning about different things. Even if you're in one organization, maybe for years, maybe it's limited, but there's still a lot to learn about that organization. And when you're in communications, you're at the crossroads. You have to know about all you know the various areas or know how to get the answers because you're going to get asked those because you're the funnel. You're the portal, as it were, for the outside world. I think with the arts, it's a tough one. I think you really need to have a tough skin and i think there's aspects of that that you can still incorporate into other sides of business like i public relations and marketing are probably the creative sides of business so i didn't go into an area of the arts full time but i took aspects of that that are in my career i mean when i'm creating web pages when I'm managing a graphic designer and overseeing a project, I still have input on the design. So I still use my design skills and my, the creative, that whole visual side of it. When you're presenting, you're using acting. When I used to have to sell to media dry things like load shifting in a pulp and paper mill, I had to make it sound exciting because I wanted to make them write about it. So I had to act. When you're dealing with cantankerous clients, when you're dealing with happy clients, when you're dealing with tough situations, when you're dealing with issues, you have to act to a certain extent so you can keep going, keep your cool. You don't want the client to know too that if you're nervous about something, because if you're nervous, they're going to be nervous. So there's an acting part. Also, I think there's ways I've been able to get these aspects still in my life. I did a lot of community theater work before my children were born. I've taken stand-up comedy and I've done some of that. I've done slam poetry. I've taken a course on it. I haven't actually done it out there, but I've been studying voiceover for the last little while. And that's kind of neat because it can sort of tie into the podcasting work. And that's an area I'd like to, you know, pursue more. But again, right now that crosses over into my business work. Since the podcast launched, I actually was able to do the voiceover for an internal video that we had at work. So I think we think that, oh, if you you have to be an artist, you have to go into X. If you want to be an actor, you have to go into X. Well, there are so many other fields, like particularly well, public relations and marketing, where these ba- aspects of these, these other talents are intertwined and will be an asset to you.
0: It sounds like to me, if you're a very eclectic person, you like to try different things, but at the same time, you are a very right low person. From the day one, you were a very artistic person. You like the arts. And it sounds like to me, like you've utilized that throughout your whole career.
1: Yeah. Interesting though, I didn't go into major in the arts. I mean, I didn't go into major in PR for the arts or arts administration because I love science. I love the natural science. So, but you're right. You don't have to shut that passion down. There is a way to work it into your day job. Certainly in the careers that I've had, it might not be true for all careers, but I think there's aspects of a lot of these skills in other careers. And I think you'd be surprised when you actually start to drill down in the various careers, how much of some of these other skills are in there.
0: On a final note, any final thoughts that you'd like to pass out there or throw out there?
1: I think really explore a career and talk to the people in it. I know that's sort of routine that really helped me and alleviated my concerns And I've heard of people who have the one school of thought that says, don't pursue a passion career because you'll starve. I think you need to explore that a little more and find a way to do it without starving as opposed to turning to do something that you really don't have any interest in just so you can put food on the table because I don't think that's a happy existence. Now, I guess the last thing I'd say, my dream was to be an actress. But when I look back on my career, I think I've had a much more interesting experience and and rich career that I would have ever had if I had just been an actress. The clients, the work, the people that I've met, the projects I've done, you're learning and you're learning new things and you're exploring and discovering new things every day as opposed to doing the same play night after night or even the same TV show. So I'm comfortable with the decision I made. Although, as I said, there's areas that I still like to do in my life and I still am hoping to pursue a little bit more. But I don't regret that. Sometimes you wonder what if... But this is a much richer road that I chose. Not rich financially, necessarily. I'm maybe rich financially as well, but rich in terms of variety and interests and fulfillment.
0: Well, there you have it. Words of wisdom from Leslie. I really want to say a big thanks to Leslie for spending the time with us this afternoon. It was a really insightful, inspirational, knowledgeable interview. She's definitely given us a good insight of what it was like to be a graphic artist and what it was like to be an actor And her long career of PR, she did describe to us her post-secondary education with doing an executive MBA. She gave us a lot of insight about that. And uh, later on, when she pursued her interactive media management certificate and uh, what she did with that and where she is right now. So I really want to just say a big thanks to Leslie because it was a really insightful interview. I thank you so much this afternoon for your time.
1: Well, thank you, Mickey, for having me. Thank you for asking interesting questions. And thank you for having this podcast, because I think it can be helpful to p- people out there trying to make decisions or change careers, to know what's available and, and hear others' experiences.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate, appreciate that comment. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Have a, have a good evening.
0: Well, you too. I really wanted to thank Leslie for that inspiring, enthusiastic, and informative interview regarding PR, marketing, and communications. Just to highlight some of the key takeaways are, even though Leslie was raised in a very traditional family where pursuing academics was sought after, she had a desire to pursue the arts. She wanted to become an actress. So she auditioned and was accepted at York University in the theater program. She provided a good description of what the program is like. So anyone interested in theater would have found this segment very beneficial. Understanding the turmoil an acting career would have had, she left to further her interest in graphic arts. And in doing so, she explored a career in public relations, which seemed to fit her very well as she was good at presenting, writing, researching, and above all, communicating with people. This is a real asset in this career. It is clear that she really enjoys this line of work, as she took us through her journey of projects and companies that she has worked for. She talked about working on the client side of things and working for the agencies as well. She talked about how technology has changed the way businesses communicate. She pointed out the similarities and the differences between PR and communications and marketing. It is very clear throughout this interview that she is a hard worker. She's one of those types that felt because she never had an official university degree that she had to compensate for it through hard work. And this is why she went back and did an executive MBA. Some good key points for here for anybody that is interested in pursuing this avenue. She talks about the upgrades she has done, and she really stresses that she is a lifelong learner. It is interesting to note an acting career would have had a lot of commotion. She still seems to have that in her PR career, and she came across as being a very adventurous person who follows her interest, which truly exhibits her personality. She really makes a point and suggests that people that are starting out or doing a career change should not be afraid to explore their interests. Look beyond the money is what she says. Once again, I really want to thank Leslie for that interview. It was a real pleasure interviewing her. Please tune in for the next episode of The Career Guy, Well, I will be interviewing Bruce Voigt. Bruce has had a career in radio broadcasting for over 30 years. So he will explain the history of radio broadcasting as how he evolved his career. He is now a realtor and has been for many years as well. So he will explain the many facets of this industry as well. So please tune in next time.